taken one week off from the Gospel of John because I thought that in light of this service, I would, uh, would preach on the subject of why does God allow the persecution of Christians. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would be with us as we uh, have opened Your Word and have read it as we are gathered in Your presence to worship You. We ask, God, that uh, You would fill our hearts with compassion toward our brothers and sisters whom we've not met, but who are suffering for the, the same Gospel that we believe and, and um, who worship the same Savior. Uh, as we have even Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, bless them and keep them. We ask in His name. Amen. ISIS executed 12 Christians, including a 12-year-old boy, after they refused to abandon their faith and convert to Islam. These murders occurred on August 28th. And this was in Syria. In front of the team leader and the relatives in the crowd, the Islamic extremists cut off the fingertips of the boy and severely beat him, beat, and severely beat him, telling his father that they would stop the torture only if he, the father, returned to Islam, revealed the Christian aid mission. When the team leader refused, Relatives said the ISIS militants also tortured and beat him and the two other ministry workers. The three men and the boy then met their deaths in crucifixion. The boy's father was a ministry team leader who planted nine churches. One woman allegedly yelled, Jesus, right before the terrorists beheaded her. Militants took eight aid workers, two of them females, to another village. They proceeded to rape the two females before they executed them. The villagers said some were praying in the name of Jesus. Others said some were praying the Lord's Prayer. And others said some of them lifted their heads to commend their spirits to Jesus, described one source. One of the women looked up and seemed to be almost smiling as she said Jesus. This... uh, Account you've probably read of it, or read it, or heard it. It was in many uh, major newspapers. And then um, on October first, you remember that there was a shooting out in Oregon. According to reports, Chris Harper Mercer, the alleged Oregon Community College gunman, asked students to stand and state their religion before shooting them. Stacy Bolin, identified by CNN as a parent of a wounded student, said the killer asked, Are you a Christian? And then Christians uh, were, were asked to stand, and he said, Good. Because you're a Christian, you're going to see God in just about one second before opening fire. Today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And one question is hanging out there that's begging for an answer. In fact, I don't think that you'll be able to pray effectively for the persecuted Christians or pray according to God's will for these persecuted Christians until you know the answer to this question. 
And this question is, what does God, or why does God allow Christians to be persecuted? If He loves us so much, why does He allow His children to be persecuted? Surely He's not putting His children through persecution just to make them squirm. He doesn't want to just make us miserable, does He? And certainly God is not on a power trip just to make us know that He is the one in charge. Well, if those reasons are not the reasons why God allows His children to be persecuted, maybe God doesn't have anything to do with our persecution. Maybe it's just the sinful hatred of mankind as it is expressed toward Christians because they hate God so much. But it can't be that because the Bible clearly says that God ordains the persecution of His, of His children. Listen to the Scriptures. Acts 14, verses 21 and 22. Um, when Paul and Barnabas had preached the Gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God. 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 2-4. through 4. Paul said, We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one may be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you now know. 2 Timothy 3.12 Paul tells Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Persecution and true Christianity are inseparable. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19, Peter says, Let those who suffer, not if you suffer, but let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10-12. through 12. You remember this from the Sermon on the Mount, from the end of the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on My account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You can know that God will bless you as you trust in Him when you are suffering persecution, because He is in control. He sends persecution your way. And this means that those twelve Christians in Syria including that 12-year-old son of the missionary and the Christians who were killed at the community college in Oregon and the countless um, others all over the world who lost their lives for their testimony to Jesus were killed according to God's sovereign will. For many Christians, this is difficult to hear. 
There's a teaching that is uh, popular today that says that becoming a Christian means that life gets easier. Once you trust your life to Christ, then your life becomes more ordered. Your psychological struggles become less severe. Your life becomes happier. To hear the Christian life leads to suffering, to tribulation, and to persecution seems like heresy in the light of such teaching. But the Apostle Paul embraced the suffering that God sent his way. Whether it was at the hands of men or not, if he got sick, he rejoiced in God. If he was shipwrecked, he rejoiced in God. If he was persecuted, he rejoiced in God. Romans 5, verses 3-5 through says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His Holy Spirit into our hearts. There's this idea in the minds of many Christians that God will not let anything bad happen to them. If something does happen that's bad, well, then they must have been unfaithful in some way or another. This is a symptom of immature faith if you are thinking along these lines. And there are many Christians with immature faith Mark DeVries, the author of the book Family-Based Youth Ministry, has a little chart that might, be help, that might help us. And he has a column of childhood faith, and then he has a column of more mature adult faith. So childhood faith would be good Christians don't have pain or disappointment. Mature adult faith, biblical faith, God uses our pain and disappointment to make us more like Jesus. Childhood faith says God helps those who help themselves. Mature, adult, biblical faith, God helps those who admit their own helplessness. Childhood faith says God wants us to be happy. Mature, adult, biblical faith says God wants, us to, wants to make us into the image of Jesus. Childhood faith says faith will always um, faith will help us always explain what God is doing. In other words, things will always work out. Mature adult biblical faith says faith helps us to stand up under God's sovereignty even when we have no idea of what God is doing. Childhood faith says the closer we get to God, the more perfect we become. Mature adult biblical faith says the closer we get to God, the more we become aware of our own sinfulness. Mature Christians have answers, the childhood faith tells us. Mature adult biblical faith. Mature Christians can wrestle honestly with tough questions because we trust that God has the answers. Childhood faith says good Christians are always strong. Mature adult faith says our strength is in admitting our weakness. Childhood faith says we go to church because our friends are there, we have great leaders, we get something out of it. Mature adult biblical faith, we go to church because we belong to the body of Christ. So I hope 
that I've established the truthfulness of the fact that God sends persecution to His children. But the question as to why God sends persecution to His children remains uh, unanswered. So let's look at 2 Corinthians 4 for the answer. And let me say right from the onset that we won't know every reason why God sends persecution our way. Even Paul did not know every reason for why he was suffering persecution. So you look at verse 8. At the very end of verse 8, he says, we are perplexed but not driven to, to despair. In other words, um, Paul was perplexed. He didn't have all the answers. But it did not hinder his faith. The issue Paul address, is addressing here in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 4 is there were false, false apostles who were moving in and among the churches. When the church was established, then these false prophets would move in and try and subvert the gospel. They would try and undermine the true apostles. In Paul's case, they would point to his weaknesses. And Paul had many weaknesses. His health was not really very good. Uh, he was not a very good public speaker, uh, he tells us in chapter 1. And apparently he had eyesores that made him unpleasant to look at. Apparently there were, his eyes were running a good bit. And on top of that, the false apostles, they were able to come in and they were able to make converts of these people that Paul was unable to reach. The reason they were able to reach these people is these false apostles were preaching a man-centered gospel and they were offering these things uh, to people that the gospel would not, would not offer to them. And so they were preaching a different gospel to get conversions. And so this is what's happening. This is the background for a lot of, first, of, of Second Corinthians. So listen to verses 1 through 6 with this perspective. Because I imagine if you're like me, you read this and you say, what is he saying here? But with this perspective, you'll see it begins to make sense. So verses 1 through 6, Paul says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. Because the false apostles, that's exactly what they were doing. They were practicing cunning and tampering with God's Word. But he continues, But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel in the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So that's verses 1-6. through six. And then he describes himself in a very unusual way in verse 7. Speaks of himself as being simply a jar of clay. That's all he is. He's just some mud that has been molded into a pot. So, verse 7 But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. 
Paul is not a beautiful vase that's been glazed and polished. He's not made with any precious metals. He's just a jar made out of mud. But the jar has a precious treasure. What is this treasure? Well, we just read it in verse 6. It is the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, to paraphrase, it is the Gospel. Paul has been entrusted with the Gospel. He's just a pot of clay, but he has the true Gospel. He has the most beautiful treasure in the world, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And what he's doing is he's just pouring forth the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter whether he's unattractive. It doesn't matter whether he has good health. It doesn't matter whether he's a powerful speaker. God is using him because God has entrusted him with the Gospel. This idea that God makes the life of a faithful Christian to be easy and free from care is dispelled in the life of Paul. Look at verses 8 and 9. He says, we are afflicted. He doesn't say we're happy, happy, happy all the time, time, time. No, he says we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed. In... Uh, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. God did not make Paul's life easy. In fact, Paul embraces the suffering and persecution that God sent his way. But he says, I never overcome. Of course, we know from Romans 8, He faced death all day long like sheep to be slaughtered, but he considered himself more than an overcomer. He was not overcome by his circumstances. He was not overcome by his persecution. He was not overcome by the false apostles. He was not overcome by his persecutors. He was not overcome by the evil one. But rather, he was an overcomer because he was in Jesus Christ. William Barclay... um, Took the last part of verse eight, I mean, of verse nine, struck down but not destroyed, and he paraphrased it to say, "We're knocked down but not knocked out." Um, Paul gives reasons for his willingness to embrace his suffering. First of all, um, he wants God to be all in all. And this is the first reason why God allows us to suffer persecution and why our brothers and sisters in other places of the world are suffering such intense persecution is God desires to be all in all. Look at the end of verse 7. Paul says we have this, this treasure in jars of clay. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God wants us to trust in Him with all our hearts. You know, one of the reasons why we struggle to have a great faith here in this country is is, is we have small worries. We have small worries, and so we have a small faith to meet our worries and our concerns and our cares. But those Christians over in Syria, over in Egypt, over in China, They have great faith. And we hear stories of their great faith. 
because God has placed them in such dire circumstances. You know, when we rely upon God, we grow. You know, I've never heard um, someone say, well, I really grew in Christ because God gave me especially wonderful times of ease and comfort. (laughs) Um, Rather, what I've heard is that every significant advance that I've ever made in my life was made uh, through difficulty, hardship, and suffering. Samuel Rutherford, one of the writers of the uh, Westminster Confession back in the 1640s, said that when he was cast into the cellars of affliction, he remembered that the great king always kept his wine there. Here he is languishing away in in jail or in God's um, in 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 God's um, cellar, and he says that's where the good wine is kept. Charles Spurgeon said that those who die in the, dive in the sea of affliction bring up rare pearls. God is so desirous that His people trust in Him wholeheartedly that He is willing to send them into suffering. Listen to Paul in First uh, Corinthians. I'm sorry, Second Corinthians. Chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Paul says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. If Paul had to be sent into affliction in order to teach him not to rely on himself, but to rely on God? What about you? Do you need some affliction to help you not to rely on yourself, but on God? And so God sends persecution and suffering and hardship so that we won't rely on ourselves. Secondly, God sends persecution suffering and hardship to magnify the glory of Jesus Christ. Because see, when we suffer persecution or when we suffer uh, tremendous difficulties, especially for our faith, the glory of Christ is magnified as we trust in Christ beyond all reason. Because everybody else would say, that foolish person, they would just it seems like it would be the wisest thing to give up Christianity, to turn your back on Christ and, 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 and be able to escape this suffering. But when Christians suffer and suffer willingly and trust in Christ in the midst of their suffering, the glory of Christ is magnified. Or in a related way, when we rely on Christ in the face of such suffering, we magnify the glory of Christ because we demonstrate that Christ is more precious to us than any comfort that this world has to offer. And then the last reason why um, God sends persecution and suffering into the lives of His beloved children is that our suffering is a witness to our persecutors. It's also a benefit to the church. 
Look at verse 10. Paul says in verse verse 10, um, after he says we're persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, verse 10, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us but life in you. The Apostle Paul says he's always carrying around in his body the death of Jesus. What does he mean by that? He's always carrying around the, 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 uh, the death of Jesus in his body. Well, what he means is, as it says in Matthew 16, verses 24 and 25, Jesus said, told His disciples, if anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in return for his soul? In other words, persecution was not as big a deal to Paul as it may be to us. Because he died daily. He took up his cross daily. He was always taking up his cross. Self-denial was a part of his lifestyle as he followed Jesus Christ. Also, he saw himself as being united to Jesus Christ. Just as we are united to Jesus Christ. Remember John 15? The vine and the branches? We're in Christ. And so His suffering flows over into our life. We don't have the persecution that our brothers and sisters do around the world. We don't have the persecution that Paul was having. But we do need to take up our cross because it is absolutely vital in this wicked culture in which we live that we make self-denial a daily habit. That we take up our cross daily. You know, another way that we um, can take up our cross and follow the Lord Jesus Christ is not be so worldly minded. In other words, I would exhort you to be faithful in tithing. We don't have a lot of hardship in this life. And so we've got to trust God in obedience. And so trusting Him with our wealth is one way that we can uh, take up our cross, one way that we can practice self-denial, practice our, our union with Jesus Christ. See, Paul saw his life as an offering to Jesus Christ. And he saw his offer, life as an offering to Jesus Christ for the sake of the Gospel. He didn't go and separate himself like the monks did. But he... Um, he saw his life as an offering to Christ and then he went to the world to preach the Gospel to them. He never blamed God for suffering because, for two reasons. One, he knew that he could only depend upon God because he had nothing else. His suffering was so great. And secondly, he knew when he was suffering that God was up to something. That God was using him. And what God was going to use him for was the preaching of the Gospel. He's just a clay pot 
But he has the, the, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And he just wants to be poured out. Or he would be willing to have, being a, a clay pot, he'd be willing to be broken that the gospel would spill out of him onto the world. So he, um, he was suffering for the sake of the gospel suffering for the sake of His enemies who were persecuting Him. He also was suffering for the sake of the church. So He says again, verse 12, So death is at work in us, but life in you. His suffering was for the sake of others. Let me ask you, do you want to make a difference in other people's lives? Are you willing to suffer? Are you willing to suffer for the good of others? I know of some in this congregation. In fact, I know of many in this congregation who are giving themselves, giving of themselves, giving sacrificially of themselves to others here in this congregation or to unbelievers. And what I've watched happen is I've watched life come visible in other people's lives through our giving of ourselves. Um, and God uh, uses that. So, the power of God in the life of His Son is going to be manifested through your weakness. The life of Jesus is flowing out of your life into others as you are willing to suffer on their behalf. But don't worry about your suffering. God will sustain you. You can be afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Your afflictions will not have the last word. Because as Paul says, you will rise from the dead. No matter if you die, Paul was killed for his faith. But he knew that he had life in Jesus Christ. A resurrected life. If you spend your life for the Gospel, if you waste your life for the Gospel, you have not wasted it. Because you have been a blessing to others, you have glorified Christ, and you have eternity with God to go. How can you know that God will be faithful? Because He gave up His own Son for you. And if He did that, will He fail to be faithful to His promises? No, He will be faithful to everyone. Let's pray together. Father, I know that there are many people here who maybe are not going through persecution per se, but are going through struggles and pressures. Father, how our hearts long to cry out, deliver us from all of them. Don't let us go through these sufferings and these circumstances. Father, my prayer instead is that we would learn from our Lord Jesus 
even from his attitude where he said, if it be possible, may this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Lord, with all my heart, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering persecution. And You have bid us pray. And that is part of our calling, to pray for their deliverance from their persecutors. Just as the psalmist cried out to You. And so we do so. But Lord, even more earnestly, we pray for their faithfulness in the face of such suffering. May they be a brightly shining witness to our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may every person who torments Your children be brought face to face with Jesus Christ through them. Father, our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ are just like Paul, just like us, simply jars of clay. But, O Lord, You have given us a treasure in Jesus Christ. As we suffer for His name, may He shine for all to see, we ask in His name. Amen.